I'm Joel Parker, and this is Hell on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, November 24th, 2015. Coming up, what is this thing called grad school? We talk with graduate students from the University of Colorado Boulder and find out what goes on in grad schools and what projects they are working on. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. We've heard a lot about the microbiome lately, the hundreds of species of bacteria in our guts, and its influence on everything from food digestion to personality traits. Here is a new finding on the role of organisms in the gut. Parasitic worms, such as roundworm and hookworm, infect 2 billion people globally. For the most part, Worm infections are symptomless. However, infection by these parasitic worms can affect the immune system in myriad ways, influencing co-infections as well as reproduction. Now, how, you may ask, can a parasitic worm influence fecundity? Good question. It's not completely understood, but the immune system of the mother has to allow foreign proteins into her body during gestation, that is, from the father's genetic contribution, and the presence of the parasitic worms can thus affect conception and pregnancy. To get at this effect, researchers at University of California in Santa Barbara went to Bolivia, where women have an average of 10 children in their lifetimes. If the women had successive hookworm infections, lifetime births dropped to seven. Surprisingly, if they were chronically infested with roundworm, they had as many as 12 children. Weird? Yes, but that's typical for the immune system. This research was published last week in the journal Science. Well, with Thanksgiving coming up in a couple days, many people take the time to contemplate what makes them happy. We humans, at least since Aristotle, have contemplated what happiness is and how to achieve it. We try exercising, meditating, scouring self-help books, boosting our sex lives, etc. But do we really know what happiness is? Well, a team of researchers at Kyoto University in Japan claim they have found the answer, at least from a neurological perspective. Happiness, according to the study, is a combination of happy emotions and satisfaction of life coming together in the precuneus. That's a region in the brain that becomes active when experiencing consciousness. People feel emotions in different ways. For instance, some people feel happiness more intensely than others when they receive compliments. Physiologists have found that emotional factors like these and life satisfaction together constitute the subjective experience of being happy. But the neural mechanism behind how happiness emerges have remained unclear. Understanding that mechanism, according to the researchers, will help scientists subjectively quantify levels of happiness. To find out more about this mechanism, the team scanned the brains of research participants with MRI and then gave them a survey. The participants were asked how happy they generally are, how intensely they feel emotions, and how satisfied they are with their lives. 
those who scored higher on the happiness surveys had more gray matter mass in the precuneus. In other words, people who feel happiness more intensely feel sadness less intensely and are more able to find meaning in life have a larger precuneus. Some previous studies have shown that meditation increases gray matter mass in the precuneus. Dr. Sato said that his study offers new insights on where happiness happens in the brain and will be useful for developing happiness programs based on scientific research. So to all our listeners, may you have a happy Thanksgiving and a well-fed precuneus. listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Joel Parker. This year, about 50 million students in the U.S. public elementary schools are happily sitting at their desks. About 17 million students are enrolled in American colleges and universities as undergraduates. That's about 6% of the U.S. population and is an increase of about 4 million, or more than 30%, over the past 15 years. About 66%, or two-thirds, of those graduating from high school enroll in college. But for many students, their college career doesn't end with a bachelor's degree. There is an additional roughly 3 million students in graduate school working toward advanced degrees. That is about one-fifth to one-sixth of the number of undergraduates. So what is graduate school like? What drives people to go through another four, five, six, or more years of school? Well, in the studio, we have some people who might be able to tell us about the grad school experience in the sciences. We have three grad students from the University of Colorado at Boulder. We have Joe Villanueva in the Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology Department. We have Annie Miller in the Integrative Physiology Department, and we have Marcus Piquet in the Astrophysical Planetary Science Department. Each of them works in a lab with an advisor doing projects that will eventually, maybe, lead to a thesis and getting a PhD, and are here to talk about what they do and what grad school is like. So welcome to the show, Joe, Annie, and Marcus. So let me start at one end with Annie here. Can you tell us what project you're working on and why you think it's interesting or important? Oh, hi, Joel. Thank you for having us today. As you said, I work in the Department of Integrative Physiology, and I am in Dr. Pei Sai's Reproductive Endocrinology Lab. 
And in our lab, we focus on reproduction, as the name entails. And we focus primarily in the brain and the pituitary gland, uh, trying to figure out how the brain and pituitary control reproduction, puberty, and so forth. Another subsection of our lab actually focuses on the development of the endocrine hypothalamus, and that's my part of the story. So explain the endocrine hypothalamus. <laughs> All right. So the endocrine hypothalamus is a region of the brain that controls a ton of different portions of your physiology. And my expertise, at least for my master's degree, was looking at the suprachiasmatic nucleus, also known as the SCN. And the SCN is the master clock in mammals. So the master clock just means that it's going to control circadian rhythms such as your body temperature, um, hormone release, and sleep-wake cycles. And so I looked at mice that had disruptions in certain growth factors, and I looked at how that impacted their circadian clock. And you're doing this in a lab setting with these uh, special mice? Yes, yes. What does that involve? Um, what exactly... Well, do you mean what, what is a day in the life in the lab? Uh, well, I check my mice every day for their well-being. It's like checking your email, you check your mice? Yes, exactly. You have to do it every day. <laughs> I genotype the mice, trying to figure out what types of genes they have and whether or not they'll be used in my studies. We look at the brains, like I said before, so I do a lot of histology work, so uh, slicing brain tissue, staining the brain tissue for certain peptides, counting certain neurons within the brain, and then doing statistical analysis on that. So is this work that is for your thesis, or you expect it to be your thesis, or is it just something you do on the side while you figure out what you're going to do for a thesis? Um, so right now I'm kind of in between projects. So I just graduated with my master's degree in May. So right now I just submitted a paper for publication in the frontiers of endocrinology and the neuroendocrine science portion of that journal. And so I'm just waiting to hear if my work will be published. And in the meantime, I'm just doing little projects on the side. All right. Well, thank you very much, Annie. Let thank me you. move over to Joe here. And I'm just, I'm going to ask you the same question. So Joe, what projects are you working on right now and why are they interesting? So currently I work on one project where uh, uh, we study salmonella, the salmonella that causes typhoid fever. And we try and understand uh, how it invades, and then how it maintains an infection in white blood cells, and then in white blood cells that have eaten red blood cells. How do you do that? What do you actually do? You, after you check your email in the morning, what next? <laughs> <laughs> so from there, we do these really cool light microscopy techniques. So I first need to thank our light core microscopy facility directors, Jolene Tyler and then Joe Dragovan, and they are just incredible. So what we do is we uh, essentially tag these different bacteria and different cell elements with fluorescent proteins or fluorescent dyes and then shine different light on them and collect that light and then merge that light together to get a bigger picture of what's happening not only at a single moment in time but through time to kind of understand what's going on. How do you actually tag them? What's that process? So that process is has to do with a little bit of gene manipulation where we have this uh, ex expression system which means whether or not it's uh, turned on or off and uh, we have an uh, this infrared fluorescent protein, which we normally have our color spectrum of a normal rainbow, but we've pushed it into the far red, where you can't see it with your eyes, but you can collect it with a camera. So it has a special signature. Yes. Okay. And so 
you're looking for that signature in particular? Yes. Um, you inject that in what you're studying, is this correct? Yes, so we have a, a, a special cell line of, of white blood cells that we take and we put these salmonella on top of them. And these uh, fluorescent proteins are expressed only in certain stages of their invasion and infection. So we try and see when that occurs and then what happens to them later on. So whether or not they replicate or stay stagnant or die, we kind of want to know what happens and what happened before that to establish this. So what is this going to tell us? So hopefully it'll tell us whether or not or where we can intervene in this in invasion process to kind of get a handle on typhoid fever because right now it infects millions of people worldwide, 21.5 million. So you're trying to find its, its weak spot. Essentially, yes. And use that point to try to interrupt it somehow? Is that kind of the greater goal? Yes, and, and th th that's actually a different project in our lab of working to find different antibiotics that target this intracellular state when these in they invade these white blood cells. We kind of want to know when we can get at them and different antibiotics we can use to kind of take them out. Is this work that you're doing, do you expect it to be part of your thesis work or is it going to be related or have you even decided that yet? So this might be a little naive of me to say I've only been at it for about six months so I would think yes but uh, <laughs> from past students I've heard a little bit of things change over time as, as much of science is. <laughs> it, it certainly you know will perhaps lead to something else that goes off in a different direction that interests you. I know that happens a lot so at least you can be flexible with that. Yes. <laughs> All right well let me move over to Marcus here. Uh, welcome to the show, Marcus. Yeah, thank you very much. Tell us what you do. You're in the Astrophysical Planetary Sciences Department. Uh, so. That's right. Um, and I work under uh, Mihai Harani, who's actually in the Physics Department. Um, but one of the projects I'm working on, and I've been talking to Mihai about turning into a thesis, is the uh, Venetia Burney Student Dust Counter, um, or SDC for short. Um, and SDC is a student-built and student-operated instrument, which hasn't really been done before this, which is on the New Horizons mission, which just passed by Pluto this past summer. And what SDC has been doing is literally just sitting on the windshield of New Horizons, collecting dust and counting dust. Um, and from that, we can figure out size and spatial distribution of dust within our solar system. And why do we want to know that? Uh, there's, so there's two very cool things we can get from SDC. Um, one is information about our own solar system. If we can count and know the distribution of dust within our solar system, that tells us information about the structure and density of objects in what is known as a Kuiper belt. So how many Kuiper Belt objects like Pluto are out there, how often do they have to be colliding, that sort of thing. Um, another thing we can look at is compare what we see in our solar system to other solar systems. Because when, when we look at other planetary systems, we don't see their planets. We see their glowing dust disks. Um, and from what we see, we can see sort of signatures from planets in those dust disks. So by comparing our measurements to what we see by other planetary systems, we can sort of infer information about what their planetary structures look like. So as opposed to Annie and Joe, you're not working in the lab with your, uh, with your instrument. It's a little bit out of reach at this point. Right, yes. New Horizons is about four and a half hours away, you know, communication-wise. So. <laughs> so assuming you also, first thing you do is check your email in the morning, what, what is your typical day? What do you do after that? Um, so a big part of it, um, like I said, you know, we, we can't actively command the spacecraft, so what we do is, you know, we come up with these command loads um, of all these operations we want to do, different observations, different commands to all the instruments aboard the spacecraft. Um, and a big part of that is I have to go through and sort of make sure that we don't miss anything or go through the command loads and make sure everything's taken care of. 
that's a big part of it. Also, we get data every now and then, so I get a good, good. You get dis- something back from <laughs> we all get, that work. We get back right, exactly. So a lot of it is sort of uh, working on data, and actually a lot of my work now is sort of developing new ways of looking at our data. Um, we've had a couple of uh, assumptions in our um, analysis techniques that we're sort of going back and looking at again and seeing if we can better them in any way. And you said you hope that this will be your thesis work, is that correct? Exactly, yes. If you just came in or came in late, you are listening to How on Earth, the KGNU science show that makes you smarter. I'm Joel Parker, and I'm getting smarter here talking with graduate students from the University of Colorado about their projects and grad school life. Let me open up the floor here and just jump in if you have something to say, but is the work you're doing in grad school what you expected you would be doing when you applied to grad school? Annie, do you want (laughs) to? Well, if you would have asked me a couple years ago, probably like four years ago, if I would be in grad school, I would have said, absolutely not. I'm going to go to med school. But my path completely changed, and I am so happy that it did because I love grad school, and I love the work that I'm doing, but I never imagined that I would be working with mice today. So how did that path change? Um, just kind of a series of events, really. Um, I had some deaths in my family, and I struggled with that, and so I didn't think that med school would be the right path. And so I was actually previously working in the same lab that I'm in now as an undergraduate. And so I applied for a concurrent program where you get your bachelor's and your master's in five years total. And I got in, and so I just took that as an opportunity. And I just completed my master's degree in May. And then I decided, well, I love what I'm doing it's very interesting. I learn something every day, so I might as well keep going, and so here I am. So so that's interesting. Yours was a bachelor's and master's program combined, and then you choose to go on if you want to get the Ph.D. Yeah. And that involves doing a thesis. Mm-hmm. Any other exams or special work? Well, yeah. Um, I think all of us have to go through comprehensive exams. Yeah. So who, who wants to describe what are comprehensive exams? I can, I can talk about uh, okay, my Marcus. department. Yeah, so it's sort of three stages for our department. There's a comprehensive one and two exams and then your thesis. Comprehensive one or just comps one is a, for us is a written exam. Uh, we have five core classes in the department. Um, they're just math methods, statistics, fluids, observations, um, um, and that fifth one, and, uh, yeah, <laughs> and atomic process, right? So we so we take a written test on all those su- subjects, um, and if you pass that, you're allowed to move on, obviously. Um, and then our comps two is sort of like a master's defense. You do an original sort of research project, uh, write a paper, and present it to a committee. And did you say those are written and or oral? Um, the first one's written, um, and the second one is oral with the written component as well. Joe, is that similar to your department? Yes, yeah, so ours is very similar. We uh, accept instead of having five core classes, we have one core class, and then ours we have a written exam, and then the following year we have an oral exam. So it's very similar. And then you get those out of the way, and then all you have to do is write a thesis, right? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it sounded like Marcus had maybe a bead on a thesis idea here with the SDC. Annie and Joe, uh, any idea what that, even what the thesis title might be? (laughs) Maybe not the title. (laughs) I know that I'm switching over to the reproductive side rather than the developmental portion of the hypothalamus. So I'll be joining the rest of the lab doing the main 
reproductive studies. In the sciences, you have to do the lab work, get some results that you hope you can write up, <laughs> and then write it up. Yeah. How long from this point do you imagine it would take for you to get your thesis? Not to put you on the yeah. spot of give me a date of when your defense is. Uh, well, I, I think it could vary a lot. I know for us, our, our cell lines take a, about a week to grow up, so we have a limited number of experiments. So it can take maybe another four years, something like that, just because it can take a while. We have a lot of troubleshooting techniques that we need to go through just to make sure things are above board. <laughs> I assume for going into grad school, you have to have some background in the department in which you're in grad school, but uh, have any of you found that you were surprised by some other undergrad classes? Like if you were to recommend undergrads classes to take to go into, you know, biochem or astronomy or integrative physiology, do you just take those classes or are there any others that any of you would recommend? Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, well, as far as class-wise, um, actually, a lot of my peers came in with actually very little astronomy background, and they sort of just learned it as sort of their trade that they do. But especially for my field, uh, math is a big component. No matter what you want to do, you're going to have to utilize math um, in some way. Um, and also, just aside from classes, I would say just get involved in some research group somewhere very early, even if you know you're just in the lab helping clean up or something like that. You know, find someone that you can sort of. Get, get an idea if this is what you want to do and if you like it. The, I see the others here nodding their head in <laughs> agreement there. Did did all three of you do lab work or research work as undergrads? Yeah, I, I, I was a part of the uh, Minority Access to Research Training or Research Careers program uh, in undergrad, and that was really instrumental in me being able to even move forward and deciding that this is something that I would like to do. It's, yeah, really uh, influential. Well, what I think I would like to do here is uh, when you are all done with the thesis and you haven't defended yet, I'll have you come back and have you give a pre-oral defense <laughs> of your thesis. But I would like to thank you all very much for coming to the show. We've been talking with Joe Villanueva, Annie Miller, and Marcus Piquette, graduate students at the University of Colorado. Thank you, Joe, Annie, and Marcus for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced and engineered by me, Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Beth Bennett and Susan Moran. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Thelonious Monk and John Coltrane. Visit our website on howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Do you have questions or comments? Call KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker.